The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. My pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Steve Richardson. He's been president of Pioneers for nearly 20 years. The uh, organization started, uh, I believe, 40 years ago by his uh, father-in-law, Ted Fletcher. I uh, had the privilege of being at their headquarters in Orlando for a church partners forum just a few years ago and was just greatly impressed by the, their focus on reaching unreached people groups throughout the world, mobilizing uh, missionaries to do uh, long-term work in planting the gospel in places where it had been previously unknown. Uh, so uh, we're delighted to have Steve and his wife Arlene with us. If you missed their seminar last night, you, re- you missed a real treat, uh, part of the story of their service in West Java, Indonesia, uh, where God, in his surprising ways, uh, used Arlene's gift of, of sewing and, and uh and, and uh, to start a business as, as venture, uh, a business as missions venture, uh, to help the poor gain skills uh, in sewing, uh, to make products uh, that have been uh, sold throughout the world uh, to help fund mission work and fund and support local communities. Uh, so we're delighted to have Steve with us as he comes to bring God's word. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Carlene and I joined the other missionaries and uh, just saying how much we appreciate the uh, red carpet welcome here at Westminster on this eye-lifting Sunday. And I call it that because that's what Jesus commanded his disciples, those who were closest to him and who knew him the best, those who knew the most, lift up your eyes, he said, look at the harvest. The fields are ripe. The human fields are ripe for a spiritual harvest. And it's amazing to consider, according to one estimate, that it's possible that today as we gather and worship here, there are as many as 4,000 more congregations of believers around the world than there were a week ago when you were here at the same time. I'm not talking about just individuals. I'm talking about whole congregations of worshiping believers. God's Spirit is on the move all around the world. I heard about a baptismal service in China some time ago where 3,000 people were baptized. When was the last time that happened here at Westminster? It's just so exciting to see what God is doing around the world. A tremendous harvest when I was carried by my parents as a little baby in their arms to the island of New Guinea 50, 60 years ago. Very few of the 1,500 language groups on that island and the islands around it had received the gospel at that time. Today, the opposite is true. Hardly any haven't received the gospel. Very few don't have churches, in many cases thriving churches. And all of that has happened in just a few decades. You and I are privileged to live in a tremendous age of global spiritual harvest. The prophets of old would have loved 
to see what you and I are seeing and to experience what you and I are experiencing. So thank you for being a faithful congregation. Thank you for your giving and for your praying. Thank you for your sending year after year. And it's because of congregations like this one here and many others like it that, for example, the Iranian church is one of the fastest growing churches in the global mission, global church community. Who would have thought that a decade or two ago? I had a friend from Jakarta who contacted me earlier this week and said, we have Iranians and Iraqis coming to Christ left and right here in Jakarta because it's we Christians who are reaching out to help them as they're arriving as refugees in Southeast Asia. And they're saying to us over and over again, why aren't the Muslims helping us? Why is it the followers of Jesus that are helping us? What is there that we need to learn and to know? And so it's such an exciting, exciting uh, time in harvest history. Now let me begin this morning as we look into God's Word with a question. How many of you like surprises? Let's see, at least a few hands, okay. All right, I'd say about a quarter of us here maybe like surprises. Or is it because there's quite a few smart people out there who are thinking to themselves, now wait a minute, Steve, I need to know a little more. What kind of surprise are you talking about? And if it's the kind of surprise my brother and I had when we awoke to an eight-foot-long python in our bedroom in the jungle eating three of our kittens, that is not the kind of surprise you want to wake up to, is it? <clears throat> or if it was our family being capsized in our canoe in crocodile-infested waters. I was a year and a half old. My little brother was two weeks old. And I was almost lost in that murky water. I'm thankful to be here today with you. No, that's not the kind of surprise that most of us would invite into our lives. And yet the Bible is full of surprises. If you think about it, virtually every page of the scriptures, <clears throat> once you kind of get past taking for granted all these amazing, amazing revelations of God, is packed with an amazing element of surprise. The flood was a surprise to all but Noah's family. The choice of Abraham and the call that came to him as he was a business person in Ur came as a surprise certainly to him. Joseph, the slave boy, became the prime minister of Egypt. David, the youngest brother and the shepherd boy, becomes a king, the king of Israel. Esther, who would have thought Esther would end up being the queen of the day's superpower? Jesus himself surprised at every turn. His birth was a surprise. His death was a surprise. His resurrection was a surprise, even to the disciples. Maybe you could say especially to the disciples. I have an idea his second coming is going to be a surprise to many, many people, even believers. And so I've started to learn to worship God by kind of a new name, and that is God the Surpriser. Try that on for size. Lord, I worship you as my great surpriser. So turn with me to a small book called Jonah. And you may need a, a minute or two to uh, actually find Jonah. It's kind of a nicely packaged little secret there in the Minor Prophets. And this little book is packed with surprises. <clears throat> so it's a, kind of a nice window into the bigger picture of God's plan. And I think uh, this is a Christmas gift under the tree that looks small, maybe not quite the one you'd want to open first, but this one is the valuable. This is like really packed with wonderful, wonderful truth and meaning along with the rest of God's scripture. So 
I will just read a couple of verses here to kind of get your memory. I know you know the book well. Get it uh, reactivated. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God is always sensing the righteousness quotient and the wickedness quotient to various societies and Nineveh like the Canaanites previously, the, the wickedness quotient had reached an intolerable level. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed the opposite direction to Tarshish, way over there, probably near Gibraltar. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to do what? To flee from the Lord. So here's our first surprise. We'll, we'll just uh, tackle uh, a handful of the surprises. We could probably go on and on. But the first surprise in these three or four pages here and the book of Jonah is who God loves. God had Nineveh on his mind and heart to jo- Jonah's shock and dismay. God's compassion extended well beyond Jonah's comfort zone. God cared for people that Jonah feared and despised. To the extent that the Assyrians were on Jonah's radar, I don't think it was positive, judging by his reaction. Nineveh represented kind of the, the world structure. It was like this huge, huge city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, about 500 miles away, give or take, from where Jonah was established generations, centuries earlier by Nimrod. You can read back in Genesis chapter 10. Jonah was shocked and dismayed by God's call so that he actually fled and he just didn't stay still where he was in the comfort of his own home. He actually decided to take action and move the other direction. It's kind of a microcosm of national failure on the part of God's people Israel. They had... They had the blessing, but they weren't sharing it. They had been called through the patriarchs and then later as they were redeemed from Egypt to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, a priest is someone who stands in the gap and represents people to God. And if the whole nation of Israel is a kingdom of priests, who are they standing in the gap on behalf of? The nations of the world. And so God's people, Israel, were meant to be a beacon of hope and of truth, putting on display God's power and His goodness and His amazing wisdom and His care for His people and inviting the world to come and taste and to see and to follow. But no, they had become self-absorbed. They had lost their sense of mission, and this is a danger for God's people in any generation and in any context and especially where there is a lot of prosperity and a lot of blessing, the natural drift, more often than not, is towards self-absorption and toward focusing on the here and now and our present needs and growing in fear, perhaps, of the bigger world and just focusing. And and eventually we become cul-de-sacs rather than freeways of God's blessing. And yet God called Abraham three times in the covenants 
And again to Isaac and to Jacob five times, later gave the Great Commission also five times, which was basically a reiteration of his original covenant promises to the patriarch saying, I'm going to bless you, yes, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to cause you to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And all of this, when it had hit home in practical terms in Jonah's life, when God said, listen, here's the implication of all that for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against what's going on there. He thought to himself, oh no, God is about to have mercy on those terrible people because I know it. Why else would he want me to go there and to preach against them unless he wanted to give them an opportunity to repent? And what if perchance, as unlikely as it might be, they actually do repent and that God extends his mercy and that is not what I would like to see happen. And so there were dimensions to God's love that he didn't understand and didn't appreciate. A mark of authenticity for us as God's people is the degree, the level of our concern for others. Those who are separated from us and from God by various kinds of distance. One of the beautiful pictures in Isaiah and in other Old Testament passages as well as in Romans 10 of people who do have a heart for God's big picture, for his mission in the world, is the picture of beautiful feet. And that's, um, don't we call that an oxymoron? Two words that aren't meant to go together? Beautiful feet? Yes. Because these feet are made beautiful by the fact that they carry the good news of the victory that has been secured at eternal cost on the cross of Calvary from the battle scene, as it were. Back to the women and children and older men waiting in the city to hear the news. Did we win? Will our lives be spared? And talk about a privilege of being that emissary, being that runner, crossing the hills and the valleys and coming and crying out, we won. God gave us the victory. Our lives have been spared. And so that is our task all around our world. Missions cannot be our idea. It is God's idea to cross these geographical distances, the social barriers, the economic differences, the linguistic hurdles of 6,900 languages to be deciphered and to translate the Bible into around the world. Historical differences, cultural chasms, and spiritual worldviews, spiritual grand canyons that separate people from the gospel message. And that was what God was essentially calling the prophet Jonah to do. It's the same call that came in a different version to my mother and my father back in the late 50s and early 60s and in 1962 with me just a few months old in their arms. Dad and mom got on a ship called the Oriana. It's been decommissioned a long time ago and they traveled to New Guinea. Ended up being told about a tribe in the southern swamps of the world's second largest island, about 1,500 miles long, shaped like a big Tyrannosaurus Rex there on the equator just north of Australia. And the few missionaries who had preceded them said, we've heard about this tribe. They live in tree houses in the southern swamps. It's hot. 
It's humid. They get hundreds of inches of rain every year. We don't know much about them. Their language is doubtless complex. It's not... Uh, there's tons of mosquitoes down there, not like up here in the highlands. Would you be happy to take the gospel to them? And mom and dad glanced at each other, and I'm sure they glanced down at me in their arms and said, yes, that's what God has called us to do. And so my dad went in with the help of another missionary who had recently established a, a beachhead, a gospel beachhead in a neighboring enemy tribe of the Sawi people. They'd only been there a year or so. And the two of them made contact with four or five Sawi men in the jungle at the junction of two rivers, got their help to build uh, a house about 20 feet by 20 feet, and using sign language, tried to explain to these men in about 10 days' time, I'm going to come back with my wife, my little baby. We're going to live in this house. We want to learn your language. Would you be willing to move in out of the jungle so that we'll be close to you? And he wasn't sure if they understood. <laughs> Ten days later, after a full day of paddling through the tributaries and the swamps and then down through the main river into the Sawi domain, uh, being paddled by several very courageous paddlers from the neighboring tribe who were taking their lives into their hands. We rounded the last bend and found, yes, they had understood. Mom and Dad saw on the bank, silhouetted against that setting tropical sun, 400 warriors, armed to the teeth, waiting to welcome us. They looked at each other and said, it's too late now, Carol, done. We're committed. The canoe slid to a stop in the mud at the feet of this throng. Dad reached over, picked me up out of Mom's arms, not realizing that in the Sawi culture, if a man comes from the outside without any weapons in his hands, carrying a little baby, it's a guarantee that he's coming in peace and has no harmful intentions. He got up, Mom followed. They made their way tentatively up into the midst of this smelly, throng as uh, the sun set and it became dark and one of, one of the chiefs called out Asa and some of those long drums that men were holding began to boom 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 with a throbbing beat the spears and the bows and arrows began to leap up and down they started to dance and they danced around us later dad said it was as if we were at the eye of a human hurricane and they swept us up to the notched pole that led up into that little house on stilts, and that throng, the women and children, started to materialize out of the jungle walls. By that time, they realized things were going to be okay. They danced around us and around that little house for three days and three nights, almost without stopping. It was our baptism into the world of the Sawi people. And the Sawi not only lived in tree houses, not only were they cannibals and headhunters, but maybe most shocking of all, when dad learned the language well enough, and mom did too, to begin explaining the gospel message to the Sawi warriors in this special house they called the man house, the warrior house, only the men were allowed to go in there, where they would plan the next hunting trip or the next raid. And dad explained the story of Jesus and his years of ministry, and then he was betrayed to death by one of his friends named Judas. And then there was a ripple of laughter and chuckling, and one man said, Hey, tell us more about Judas. I'd love to promise my daughter in marriage to a man like Judas. Dad said, Wait a minute. 
You mean Jesus? He said, no, Judas, he sounds like one of us. Dad said, what do you mean one of us? He said, well, didn't you say he betrayed his friend to death? We do that a lot. In fact, we idealize treachery and sometimes we'll, we'll, do, we'll encounter somebody in the jungle from another village, maybe another part of the tribe or a distant tribe. And instead of killing them on the spot, we invite them to our village, we have a feast, we let them go home, we say, could you be an ambassador? And over time they come, make repeated trips, and then one day the signal gets passed around among the warriors. One man pull, pulls a bone dagger out from under the grass mat, another man stands up and pull, pretends to stretch, and he pulls a spear down from the weapons rack. And then one of our leaders cries out, which means we've been fattening you with friendship for the slaughter as we would do with a pig. Dad realized, wow, he had a cross-cultural communication challenge on his hands. Went back into our house, shared what he just heard with mom. <clears throat> they did what the only thing they could do, and that is throw themselves on their knees, just pleading for God's help and mercy. And in the meantime, three or four Sawi villages had moved in they, right, right around us. They wanted to be close to us, but they didn't like being close to each other, so battles broke out. And they tended to fight right in our front yard because that was the only cleared area there was to fight in. People were getting injured, if not killed. My dad was accustomed to rushing out and trying to break bows and arrows and restore order. And my mom, I think, counted 14 major battles fought in our front yard in the first few weeks that we were there. Finally, my dad said, you have to make peace or we're going to move away because nobody's listening to our message. And people are getting hurt and we didn't come to cause problems. We came to bring a message of peace. And they realized he was serious. And there was a meeting that went on that whole night, and Dad didn't realize it, but the, the patriarchs of the, the village of Kamur were meeting. The next morning, Dad was studying language with his friend Adi, I remember Adi, and I uh, heard this terrible cry, and he rushed out thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to rush into the middle of a throng of fighting warriors and try to restore order one more time, but this time he saw a very different sight. This time he saw a father running from the village of Kamur over the logs and through the mud, over to the village of Hainam over here, tear, tears streaming down his cheeks, holding his little newborn baby boy. The mother of the child had thrown herself in the mud and was crying out, why does it have to be us? Let somebody else do it. We only have one child. And the father ran and he gave his little boy to the enemy over here in the village of Hainam. Dad turned to Adi and said, Adi, what's happening? Tell me, explain. Adi said, well, Don, you've been telling us that you, we have to make peace, right? I don't know what it's like where you come from. Maybe your people never fight. We fight all the time. And we're a treacherous people. And so what you're asking us to do can only be done in one way, and that is by giving one of our own boys to the, to the enemy as an indication of our sincerity. And Dad said, what are they going to do to that little boy? Are they going to hurt him? Adi said, no, they won't. They'll take good care of him. He'll be adopted into their village. He'll be one of them because the peace will only last as long as he lives. If he falls out of a treehouse and dies in the thorns below, if he falls out of a canoe and gets eaten by a crocodile, or if he gets bit by a death adder and dies half an hour, an hour later from the poison, then the warfare can resume without notice at any time because the peace hinges on the life of that child. Dad went back into our little house there 
mom had been watching from the porch through the windows, and they compared notes, and it was just like, wow. We thought we'd heard it all. This is so strange. But then they realized, too, together that this is strangely familiar. Two parties at war. One party so desperately wanting peace that they're willing to actually give their own child to the enemy as a basis for reconciliation. The peace lasting as long as that child lives. Doesn't Hebrews tell us he ever lives to make intercession for us? And because he has been raised from the dead, we have peace eternal. They realize this could be the key. This could be the answer to their, their heartfelt prayers over the preceding weeks and months. And so dad took a few more days and learned a few more vocabulary words. He wanted to get this right. Went back into the manhouse and through the smoke and over the toasted beetle grubs that everybody was munching on, he began to share the story again. But this time he added a detail. This time he described Jesus as God's peace child. When he got to the part where he was betrayed to death and killed, there was no ripple of laughter and joking this time. There was just silence. And then that same chief in the back behind said, Hey, wait a minute, Tuan Don. What did, did you just say that this man who was betrayed was a peace child? Dad said, yes. He said, why didn't you tell us that the first time? Dad said, I didn't realize that was such an important detail. Why important makes all the difference in the world. To betray a peace child to death is the worst thing that anybody can do. It's called tarab gaman. It means, it means shredding the peace. All of a sudden, Judas' rating slipped in the minds and the hearts of those Sawi warriors sitting there in that warrior house. And you could see the scales falling and the light, spiritual light starting to come on in their souls as they realized that Jesus was Miyakodon's tarab team. One of the first patriarchs there to... Um, approached my dad, maybe a little bit like Nicodemus, came to Jesus, <clears throat> was a man named Hato. Hato only had one good eye. The other eye had been pierced by an arrow, had rotted out. He gazed into my father's face with his remaining eye and said, Tuan Don, you've been telling us about Miyakodon's Tarop team. We Sawi, when we give a peace child, the receiving village has a ceremony and all the warriors gather around and one by one we lay our hands on that child. And one by one, we say, I accept this baby as a basis for peace between our village and the enemy. I want to do that with the ultimate, the creator's son, his peace child. But I can't see him. You've been telling us about him. Could you give him a message for me? And my dad had the joy and privilege of saying, Hato, you can tell him yourself. You can't see him, but he's right here and by faith. As you pray and express your heart to him, you can ask him to be your Taropim. Hato paused and said, I want to do that. He said, can I bring my wives and all of our children as well? And dad said, yes, bring your whole family. And it was the beginnings of an amazing open door of opportunity, 1 Corinthians 16.9, handed to mom and dad. And the people movement among the Sawi as more and more people started saying, I want God's peace child to be my personal peace child as well. And their lives were transformed. And as a boy growing up, my first 14 years in that context, I had the priceless privilege and joy of having a front row seat to the truth that we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. 
Yes, for the Jews, but also for the entire Gentile world. Now, <clears throat> a really fun 15-minute uh, video that you would thoroughly enjoy watching, I guarantee it, money-back guarantee, is called Never the Same, and it's, the, it's the, the, uh, the documentation of when my father and my two brothers and I, my sister wasn't able to come, my mother had already gone to heaven after a battle with pancreatic cancer, Six or seven years ago, we realized it's going to be the 50th anniversary of the arrival of the gospel among the Sawi people. Let's go back and let's have a reunion. And we contacted one of the elders. We didn't know if anybody would be there. There was like this much communication, like one or two pieces of communication. We arrived, and I won't spoil the video for you, but it's just an amazing celebration of the arrival of the gospel 50 years later and the impact that it had made on their lives. And they worshipped in a cathedral. It, wasn't a, it didn't have quite the, the finesse of our sanctuary here, but it was 70 feet. It was the biggest, as far as I know, the biggest hut made out of jungle materials in the history of the world. You could fit 1,100 Sawi worshippers in what they called the Sawi Dome to the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so who God loves? Yes, these cannibals and headhunters, one of just a few tribes on the face of the earth that actually practiced both customs. And God called my parents and me as a, as a six, seven-month-old baby into the midst of this throng of cannibals and headhunters. What a strategy is that? And yet that's what God used. And in, in fact, I used to... My dad went home to heaven uh, December 23rd, a couple of months ago. And I used to joke with uh, Dad, you owe me your life because if I hadn't been along on that trip, uh, who knows what would have happened. So Jonah had this huge surprise, but he had another surprise, and that is that he was the one that God called. God's unlikely instruments to save an empire. And I could tell you story after story of the amazing ingenuity and creativity and outlandish choices that God makes in terms of who he decides to use sometimes as his instruments. I mean, talk about Saul of Tarsus. He said to Ananias, he is my chosen instrument to take my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before my people Israel. This is this primary opponent, like many of the Muslim leaders and the radicals. Oh, let's pray that they follow in the footsteps of Saul of Tarsus and become proclaimers of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jonah was an obscure person, son of Amittai from the little town of gath Heifer. Who would have thought that he didn't even want to volunteer? He didn't want the job. And I think a lot of times we kind of, at least subconsciously, we restrict God to volunteers. It's like, like who's going to volunteer? No, no, God doesn't restrict himself to volunteers. Praise God when we sense the stirring of his spirit in our lives and our hearts and we do say, here my Lord, send me. But there are times when God literally shakes your world and he grabs it by the foundations and he says, I'm calling you as uncomfortable as it is for you to... Step outside of your comfort zone or your children or your grandchildren. And as we have grandchildren ourselves, now I'm realizing the gravity of what it means to give you that kind of a challenge. To lay your children and your grandchildren on the altar and say, Lord, yes, that could be the biggest sacrifice I ever make, but I, I just want them to be available to be your servants wherever, the, wherever they, you call them and whatever that means. And so a massive task. This obscure person called to Nineveh, the great city, 600,000 people or more, it's estimated. The inner wall of that city, about eight miles long. The outer walls, about 60 miles. It would take 
Imagine walking 60 miles around the outer wall of the great city of Nineveh, this massive, massive city. A people who worshipped, among other gods, the fish god. Isn't that kind of interesting? And so God was calling Jonah and even used his disobedience to allow for him to come to Nineveh with a pretty big fish story to tell to these people who worshipped the fish god. And so we often feel overwhelmed. Do you ever feel overwhelmed with the notion that there are 7 point what? 7.6 billion people in the world today? As we heard earlier, maybe 3 billion of them live in unreached people groups. Of the 10,000 or so unreached people groups in the, uh, uh, people groups in the world, 4,000 of them are unreached. They don't have even a critical mass of churches, of believers in their society to be able to impact and reach their own people without outside help, without missionaries helping and other organizations and churches helping in that process. These are unreached people groups. One easy way of looking at it is less than 2% of the population identifies themselves as followers of Jesus. And most of them, it's far less than 2%. So it's a massive job, just like the city of Nineveh, 7.5 billion people. If you put us in a line, all, all the people alive in the world today, and gave each one of us a foot of space in which to stand, that line would be 55 times around the equator. That line of precious men, women, and children would stretch from here to the moon, back to the earth again, to the moon a second time, back to the earth, to the moon a third time, and halfway back to the earth again. All of these precious people created in the image of God desperately need to hear the news of what happened 2,000 years ago and they're still waiting. Ever think God can't use you? If he can use Jonah, he can use you and me. It was about 40 years ago, actually, that um, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, Ted and Peggy Fletcher, God stirred their hearts. Hearing challenges like this, and he ended up, this is not the way God normally does it, but he ended up resigning his position as national sales manager for the Wall Street Journal and his role in Dow Jones and uh, just waited kind of like Abraham leaving. The Hebrews tell us, tells us Abraham didn't even know where he was going. God said, I will show you later. And step after step, and here today as a result of their faithfulness, they started a little ministry in their home in the Sterling, Reston, Virginia area near Washington, D.C., 40 years ago that has become pioneers with over 320 teams of church planters serving in 100 countries around the world, about 3,000 missionaries, because Ted and Peggy Fletcher said, God, we're open to whatever your creative plan is for us. We're not going to insist on being the pilot of our own plane. And God honored that faith and that risk. God loves people who aren't overly risk-averse, people who are willing to entrust them into his arms. The third surprise to me is who responds. <clears throat> Throughout the pages of Jonah and often in Scripture, 
It's the pagans who are actually more responsive to God's word, to his message, than the people, than God's people themselves. And so here you have the sailors asking some really good questions. I won't time to take time to go through them all. But they, they tried their best to save his life. They cried out to God. They obeyed. And then it says they greatly feared and they made sacrifices and vows. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, to me it's one of the most amazing statements in all the pages of Scripture. It's this brief phrase that says the Ninevites believed God. From the emperor on his throne to the paupers in the streets, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And this motivates me. There are people who will respond all over the world. There are multitudes, millions and millions of people who if they only had the opportunity to hear the gospel message. The harvest is ripe, yellow, Jesus said. When the Gentiles heard this, Acts 13, 48, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Praise the Lord. The final surprise uh, that we're going to touch on today, and there are many others we won't take the time for, is simply this. Not just who God loves and who he uses and who responds, but who needs help. Now, my instinctive answer to that question would be, well, of course, the Ninevites, that desperately wicked people. Yes, they did desperately need God's mercy and grace and help. And their doom was postponed several decades as a result, I presume, of Jonah's time there. But you know, in the pages of the, this little book of Jonah, guess who is the bigger challenge for God? It wasn't the Ninevites, it was his own prophet, his own, his own follower, Jonah. And God has to teach him some important lessons, and God has to do heart surgery on him. Have you any right to be angry? You see, Jonah was self-absorbed and had his own agenda. And God provided a worm, and he appointed a storm and a great fish, and he caused the vine to grow, and then he brought an east wind so that that vine would shrivel. To bring to the surface, for Jonah's own awareness, God was already aware of it, but Jonah himself wasn't aware of the depths of his own need for God's mercy. And until, I believe, until we recognize how desperately we have been in need of God's saving power in our own lives, we are not very likely to be very motivated and passionate about taking that same power, that dynamite of the gospel, to other places, other people, and other peoples in other places. So God's work in Jonah figures more prominently even than his work in Nineveh. God is the hero of this story, and his unstoppable love is on radiant display in the life of the disobedient, the reluctant prophet. And we could go on and unpack quite a few other wonderful truths. On your journey, brothers and sisters, um, God is not only going to use you as his instrument, as he did the Apostle Paul, not in the same way, but an instrument nevertheless, He's also going to work in your life and in my life because part of his goal is not just to convey his blessing through us, other, to, uh, through us to others but to transform our lives, to make you and me into more and more each day in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that transformed servant to take his message of mercy. 
act of amnesty, heavenly amnesty to the nations of the world. I want to leave you uh, in closing with the prayer of Psalm 67, essentially, that we opened earlier in the service with. And it's this simple prayer, which I believe uh, is the most powerful prayer that a person can pray, assuming you've prayed the sinner's prayer at some point in your journey, and that is, Lord, bless the nations through me. Reread Psalm 67, watch the film Never the Same, and put pioneers next to it. It comes right to the top. And then maybe in your Bible, <clears throat> or on your mirror in the bathroom, or somewhere in your home, write that prayer, Lord, bless the nations through me. That sounds audacious, but it is a godly, godly prayer. And then watch and wait as you pray that every day, maybe multiple times, and watch to see how God will bless the nations through you. Our family used to put puzzle, puzzles together when I was a kid, you know, around family holidays. And your life is like a puzzle piece. One thing about a puzzle piece is it's small. My life is small, your life is small. In God's big scheme of things. Secondly, it's unique. In a good puzzle, there's no other piece that's exactly like that. And your contribution to the big picture of God's mission is going to be unique. And then finally, it's significant. Have you ever come to the end of putting a puzzle together and there's a piece missing? How irritating. And so let not your puzzle piece be missing when we come to the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in what I think will seem like just a few years' time. God bless you, brothers and sisters, and may he make you a blessing to the nations of the world.